It's a reverse reading to try and work out from what 1 Timothy 3 says about the selection of people in ministry as to what temptations, therefore, they are likely to face in ministry. So then, first, temptations. Now, there's long been a puzzle in James 1 about temptation, perasmos. So we read the King James Version. You know, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Count it joy when you fall into temptations. And then he goes on in verse 12, Blessed is the man who endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, modern translators try to help us resolve this by differentiating between trials and temptations. But the old King James Bible makes no kind of concession to that. And so today, in a translation, a modern translation, verse 2 and verse 12 is about trials that might come upon us, and verses 13 and 15 about temptations. Unfortunately, though, James did use the same Greek word. And there is in the passage another word for being tried and trial that goes with this word for temptation and it's a completely different word. Now I I can guess and appreciate what the translators are trying to do to help us here, but there is a deeper reality that in their attempt to help us might actually be covered over. It's not just in our external trials that we experience internal temptation. For I don't need an external trial to be enticed to sin. My sinful heart is able to do that without any external trial, I can assure you. But that in every temptation our sinful heart desires, we are being tested. Tested and refined as we battle against our temptations. And therefore there is a sense of joy that we should have in the battle that is presented before us. Yet this testing is not in order to fail, but in order to succeed and grow. You can set tests for students in order to fail as many as possible. But you can send tests for students in order to improve them. As they articulate and concentrate and a good exam actually helps the student grow in their knowledge and understanding. It's a positive experience examinations, I say to people who by and large aren't facing any. (laughs) But it's this testing as of metal that purifies and strengthens it. For the spiritual warfare between the flesh and the spirit is not to be denied as if it doesn't exist within us because we're Christians, nor will it finish in this lifetime nor is it to overwhelm us ever in defeat, but it is to be embraced as an opportunity for growth. For the heart of our temptations lies in enticement. We're lured or aroused to sin by our own desires, never by God, of course. 
He cannot himself be tempted because he doesn't have an evil heart like I do. And he never tempts or entices us to sin. He doesn't need to, actually. But anyway, he wouldn't do such a thing. No, we're lured by our own evil and deceitful heart, the heart of flesh that arouses our temptations. Now, we may have added to that the devil's wiles in lying to us or the persecutor's pressures in applying pain to us, but it's still the internal battle of the heart and the flesh which entices and needs to be overcome. When people speak of struggling with sin in their life, they tend to think, how can I be a Christian? Whereas I want to say to them, as long as you're struggling, you are. It's when you stop struggling that I have my doubts about your Christianity. A good spiritual fight is the sign that the spirit and the flesh are still at battle and still at war. No battle sounds like the flesh has won to me. Or you're dead. There's another option, but I don't generally have them talking to me that much. I wonder if it's because they're in heaven that they're not willing to talk to me. Never mind. Now, let's turn then to the ministry passage of 1 Timothy 3, if you have your Bibles or telephones with you, to think about the temptations in ministry. Now here Paul is instructing Timothy about the selection and appointment of elders and deacons. Now I don't want to go into the troubled waters of who they are and whether they're ordained and paid or full-time or part-time and whether a, a Baptist deacon is the same as an Anglican deacon, which they're not, and whether either of them have got anything to do with New Testament deacon, I doubt. But I'm not going to go into that. Right? That's, that's too complicated and irrelevant for what I'm talking about. What? Whatever particular theory you may hold, and of course the Presbyterians are right, whatever theory you may hold, the passage is about suitable leadership within the church. For these men are to manage God's church, verse 4. They are to serve as deacons, verse 10, verse 13. So what can you say about the criteria for selection? Well, as it says of the elder in verse 3, he must, verse 2, he must be above reproach. Being an elder is a good work. It's good to desire, therefore, what is a good thing to do. Therefore, he must be, verse 2, above reproach, which is then explained in the following verses as to what above reproach means. And that phrase governs the following verses. First, in, and in general, the important observation to make is that it involves character convictions and competencies, but not in equal measure. Character and convictions are the primary bases in which a person's competency must be found in order to be selected. So most of the qualities to be looking for are about character, not competencies. He's got to be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, not drunkard, not a lover of money. These, of course, can only be found in Christians by the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us the conviction of the truth of the gospel and working in us to will and to do his good work. 
But there are also convictions that are, also, that are important. So verse 2, he must be able to teach. Now while this may be a competency, he's a good educator, I doubt that's the key element of the, convict, of the, of, of the nature of Christian teaching. It's much more the convictions that he has. You see, the parallel passage in Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instructions in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's not just that you have pedagogical skills, it's that you actually are able to teach because you know the truth by which to teach, and especially the truth which is the mystery of the gospel. So in chapter 3, verse 16, back here in 1 Timothy, it winds up with that great confession of the mystery of godliness. And verse 9, the deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith, for critical to understanding godliness are the pastorals. But it's not godliness. We tend to have put a, a, another, zero, another O into godliness and turn it into a kind of moral activity. Godliness is actually a, a much more vertical activity. It's, the word is a word of religion, a, a word of piety. Uh, the opposite of godliness is not so much ungodly as godless. Uh, godliness has to have a God concept in it and God context in it. For the mystery of godliness is... He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There's nothing about morality or ethics or the character of your cultural life at that point. The mystery of godliness is the gospel. And you've got to hold it with a clear conscience, which takes us back into chapter 1, where the false teachers do not have that, and the reason for the charge to stop them teaching is actually the hope of the cleansed conscience. But in this context of character and convictions, they still do need to have competencies to be able to teach. And very importantly, verses 4 and 5, and then down in verse 12, because I'm rumming in together the, elect, the uh, elder and the deacon, uh, is the ability to manage their own households or their children. So the first temptation I would draw from this is the temptation to judge ministry by ability rather than by character and convictions. Not just to judge others, but to judge ourselves or let others judge us on this false criteria. Yet we have to be able to do the job. But critical to doing the job is the transformed life that comes from the gospel and the work of the Spirit in our lives. How often do we see high-profile ministers falter in their personal lives and so undermine the faith of those whom they were appointed to care for? Or people appointed and praised because of their gifts and their abilities while they're Christian character convictions overlooked. The appointment of the youth worker is almost the litmus test at this point 
for everybody wants the youth worker who is so charismatic that he's the Pied Piper to gather all the young people in the suburb around about them and lead them on into hell because he's not converted. The, the competencies are not what it's about. The character, the convictions are the, the cradle in which the competencies must be found. Appointing we people we like instead of appointing people who believe and live the gospel is one of the great mistakes that we fall into over and over and over again. But when we look at the character, let's turn our attention to it. What does it mean to be above reproach in character in this passage? Now it's possible to group the kind of character issues here under three headings. Rather than just work through verse by verse, let me give it to you under three headings. Family life, personal life, public life. You see them there on the outlines. Firstly, family life. Verse 2, verse 12, he must be the husband of one wife. Uh, it's alright, but you know, it, it's a one-woman man. That's what he is to be. It, it could be anti-polygamy, but I doubt it. It really is a way of saying essentially faithful. That is the nature of Christian marriage. Love is not the essence of marriage. Faithfulness is the essence of marriage. Hollywood told us on love was the essence of marriage in the middle of the 20th century, in the 1930s and 40s. Prior to that, people knew that that's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about having children and being adults. Uh, uh, love and marriage goes together like a horse and carriage. It's about the kind of intellectual reach of the 1950s. But the consequence of it is that we now say, oh, if they love each other, then it's all right, which of course is a complete nonsense. The husband is to love the wife, that is his duty. But faithfulness, both husband and wife, are to undertake. And the husband of the one woman man, it's parallel to the widow in chapter 5. She's to be a one man woman. And that's not an anti-polyandry verse. So it's not about polygamy, it's about essential faithfulness in marital life. Verses 4 12 also pick up his managing of his household. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the God's church? Uh, manage is to stand before, is to lead his own households, really. Uh, but notice he's got to do it well. That's what's being called upon here. But what does it mean to do it well? Well, that's spelt out in the next couple of verses, 4 and 5. With all dignity. Uh, be it the whole household or be it his children, but it's all seriousness. For the word dignity is a word of seriousness. It's a word that indicates that you live such a life that is, that is worthy of special respect. That you live a respectable life. And as such, the children are to be submissive. That's not a psychological state, but under control, uh, not wild. The man whose children are uncontrolled is not doing his job properly. We're talking here children, the word sometimes can mean offspring, sometimes just means dear friends, but in this context you've got to think about children. This is a problem for us, I know, because as we get older and our children get older and choose to go a way of life that is different to the family, many a ministry couple start to feel like, well, we're not 
fit for the ministry because look at how children have turned out. We're not talking about how the children turn out as adults. We're talking about what they're like as children. Are they under control? Is your household in order? Or are they the wild kids of the street that uh, everybody complains about living next door to? And then verse 5 also tells us about the nature of this leadership. That is, he's got to care for God's church. Because if you can't manage your family, how can you care for the church? For the leadership is a leadership of caring, which is not altogether surprising because though there are 65,000 books on psychobabble for Christian leadership, when you go through the scriptures about leadership, one, there's no particular word for it, and secondly, when the concept is discussed, the concept always comes down to taking responsibility. That is the art of Christian leadership, taking responsibility. And so to manage your household is to care for your household, as to manage the church of God would be to care for the church. It's to take responsibility for your own household. And if you can't do it for your own household, how will you be able to do it for that which is more difficult, namely the household of God? In terms of his character and relationship in family life, verses 11 and 12 talk of the wives of the deacons. Uh, it could be the assistant women, it could be deaconesses, but I think it's the wives. Um, uh, I, I've thought this for some time, etc. But there's a there's good. Uh, I was just about to hear a little commentary on the, the pastorals, which I found very helpful. Just weighing as I always do, but I can't think of the name of the man. Knight G. W. Knight wrote a very useful commentary on G. W. Knight's the closest thing I know to Peter Peter O'Brien. Really, uh, he, he has that same kind of sensible, sane, careful, here are the alternatives, this is why. He, he's a judicious commentator. Uh, there are lots of good commentaries on the pastorals. I mentioned it because I thought again about this and I thought, oh gee, so this morning I sat and read it again on this section and uh, once more he persuaded me to go down the life of the wives. How much is he responsible for her? How much is her behaviour affecting his appointment? See, she must share his ministry. She must share the same character of life. That if his wife is not sharing the same character of life as he is, it would be very unwise to select him for the task. I think that's an important part for our evening this evening as husbands and wives. Likewise, it says, similar to the deacon, to the presbyter, she must be dignified. Again, that kind of word of, of seriousness, that word of being respectable, being worthy of respect and not slanderous. This is the word of the devil because he is a slanderer. He is the one who accuses God and God's people. He is the one who tells lies. It's not that she's not to be herself a devil, but she's not to do that which is the devil's work, that is the slanderer, but rather be sober-minded. The word is actually rather be sober. Uh, uh, but sober in the sense of alcohol cannot be removed from the concept, but what 
drunkenness does is makes one stupid. What sobriety does means that you are level-headed. And so it's not wrong to be translating it sober-minded as a concept that we have, especially as the subject of alcohol is going to come up again and again in this little passage. But she's to be faithful in all things. See, the great responsibility and virtue of being covenant people is that God is faithful, and therefore we also are to be faithful. One of the problems with multi-faith services, of which there are millions of problems, but one of the problems with multi-faith services is only Jews and Christians actually believe in faith. Buddhists don't have faith. Hindus don't have faith. Faith is a concept that comes from the covenant. It comes from a personal God who gives you promises and requires certain obligations from you. Well, in Buddhism you don't have those concepts. In Hinduism you don't have those concepts. So they can go to multi-faith services because they don't have faith, they just have multi. But those of us who have faith can't go to multi-faith services because you can only have faith in the one and true living God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But she is to be faithful. Now what does faithful mean? What does faith mean? It's got to do with firmness. It's got to do with fixity. It's got to do, it's, it's the opposite of flighty and fickle. There are good synonyms. I've actually given up on the word faith in the Bible. It's a colossal cause in Australia. The word faith means superstition. If you're talking to a non-Christian and you use the word faith, he hears you saying, be superstitious. Justification by superstition alone. It's not what we mean, but that's what we're saying if you judge your words by the receiver rather than by the, the sender. But we've got really good synonyms. Rely, depend, trust. They're really good synonyms. They're not religious, as the word faith is not a religious particularly word. But, and they have the other side, unreliable, dependable, trustworthy. But notice all of them have to do with certainty, confidence, fixity, firmness, and they're the opposite of fickle and fancy-free and flighty. Well, she is to be faithful in all things. Now, the world is very ambiguous, ambiguous about that kind of faithfulness. Society requires it. It's built on it. You need it in your neighbours. You need it in your spouse. You need it in everything you do. In you can't have a society without faithfulness, frankly. But... It's not very sexy. You know, it's not very glamorous. It's not very exciting. It's not the kind of thing that's going to be promoted on any television set tonight in Australia. Indeed. At the moment, there's a series being run on our ABC. Where else would you expect it? But the ABC, it's your ABC, it's not mine. <laughs> you know, the beautiful lie. Well, that's right up the devil's arm, isn't it? And, of course, it's a story of adultery, but I don't know much about it because... It's a beautiful line, a story about adultery, so I'm not watching it. I'm just paying taxes so that it can be shown to other people. <laughs> Faithfulness in all things she's to be. Secondly, and a large proportion of the character description here, is not about family life, it's about personal life. Most of it is. Verse 2, he's to be sober-minded. It's the same word as the deacon's wife. He's to be self-controlled. The word of wise-minded as a way of saying it. It's the idea that the mind is going to control your life. 
a person whose life is controlled by wisdom. It's a, a word, a, a group of words that occurs very commonly in the pastorals. He's to be respectable. Uh, it's the same word for the Christian woman's clothing back in chapter 2, verse 9. Modest, appropriate, behaving in a way that will will evoke approval and acceptance. Some years ago, my dear wife informed me that I was no longer of such anatomical shape as to look in any way respectable in jeans. <laughs> Very helpful. As she threw them away. Working as a university chaplain for 30 years, you must not be Peter Pan. The person who in his 50s is still trying to be 20 is an idiot and everybody knows it. You've got to be your age. You've got to act and even dress in a way that people will treat you with respect. I was fascinated by the med students that I dealt with because they would do pre-med kind of studies around the university, then they'd go to the hospital. Pre-med around the university, they were dressed in goodness knows what. They hit the hospital, you knew they'd hit the hospital because they suddenly turned up to Bible study wearing a shirt and tie. Because the doctors taught them, if you don't act with respectability, don't expect people to respect you. The medical fraternity is very clear about they need the respect of the community. And it's even down to how they dress. And uh, I didn't know those blokes had ties. And in fact, the way that some of them tied them, they obviously hadn't had ties previously. <laughs> and to be hospitable, that is the lover of the stranger, welcoming and providing for others, especially those who have no rights. And able to teach, and here is his competency, but we can't differentiate totally his character and convictions from this competency. Those of you involved in Christian schooling, this is one of the big problems, isn't it? Here is this brilliant French teacher who's actually an atheist. Are they going to teach French to our students in school without their atheism affecting the way in which they teach French, especially teaching French culture, French philosophy, French way of understanding? Now, to be able to teach Christianly, you actually have to be Christian. Verses 3 and 8 speak of not a drunkard, not addicted. I think that's a, 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 an unfortunate translation because addicted has a particular specific meaning today for those of us who are involved in AA and the like. Uh, not addicted, not given to lots of wine. Do you remember Lemuel's mother's advice? Uh, she, she gives the advice to rulers in Proverbs 31. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those who are in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. The Bible's not against having strong drink. I say this as a teetotaler, it's I've been all my life. 
And as one who made the mistake in his youth of thinking that alcohol was evil, the Bible does not see alcohol as evil any more than it sees heroin as evil. Heroin is a wonderful substance to give in palliative care. It's one of the best to be given in palliative care, for it has so few side effects. Its main effect is addiction, but in palliative care that's not really a problem. It's a great substance. All things that God has created are good and to be received in the right way. And for those who are poor and in bitter distress, alcohol is like that. It's a good thing. But for leaders, alcohol is a disaster. And so the Methodists of a previous generation, the Wesleyans, the members of the congregation could drink alcohol with certain control, but the ordained ministry had to sign the pledge. Lemuel's mother's advice. You might ponder it, whether your drinking practices are consistent with the Bible or consistent with Australia. It goes on, not violent but gentle. Just as a side, in case you hadn't noticed, I do asides. Just as another aside, Australia is now concerned about domestic violence, and it should be, but frankly, it's a load of hot air and nonsense. For as long as Australia is going to continue with its commitment to alcohol abuse, any attempt to stop domestic violence is a complete waste of time. For the main contributing factor to domestic violence in Australia is alcohol abuse. Just check the statistics as the number of times women are bashed by drunken men. It is the main contributing factor. But it is a sacred cow in Australia, so we're going to try and solve domestic violence without looking at the subject of alcohol. Or gambling, for that matter. You go right ahead, try all you like, but excuse me if I'm not going to turn up to the prayer meetings. The man is not violent, but gentle. These go together as contrasts. The violent man, the bully if it may be, is not a man of God. See Psalm 140, you can find it through the Proverbs and the like as well. Rescue me, O Lord, from evil men. Keep me safe from violent men. Protect me, O Lord, from the clutches of the wicked. Keep me safe from the violent men. Violence is not the character of the Christian person. Uh, you may have to go to war. That may be a right thing. But if you love violence, that is a wrong thing. There's a difference between having to defend the right, even using violence to do it, and loving violence and enjoying it. I'm not talking about rugby here. That's not violent at all. It's gentlemanly. The faithless, of course, are violent. So part of the domestic violence that needs to be taken into account, which it will not, because our politicians couldn't think this clearly, is Malachi 2. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Divorce is violent. But you're not allowed to speak against that in Australia anymore either, are you? Rather, we're to be gentle, because that is a character of Jesus himself, the meekness and gentleness of Christ in 2 Corinthians 10. This gentleness word is the reasonableness of God's wisdom from above, not insisting on rights, but yielding, courteous, tolerant of others. So, not quarrelsome. 
It goes with not being violent, but being gentle. For it means not a fighter, not a brawler, not a disputatious person. You might remember 2 Timothy, where he writes, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And that he's not to be a lover of money. Not to be greedy, not to be covetous, must be content with what we have. Chapter 6, of course, in 1 Timothy, goes on to attack people who think godliness, religion, is gain. It's called the prosperity religion. It's spread all over the world by the Pentecostal movement today. And it's as old a heresy as as 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is, of course, the root of all manner of evil. And 1 Peter 5, the elder is not to be taking on the responsibility for shameful gain. As Titus 1 speaks of people, uh, false teachers, who, who teach for gain. Verse 6 then, he's not to be a recent convert. The reason is given here, he may become puffed up, uh, proud, arrogant, conceited, and therefore fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is the same condemnation as the devil. To fall in with him, both in sin and condemnation. Additionally, in verse 7, moreover, he could be snared by the devil by falling into disgrace in his life. For his life will not stand up to the testimony of the non-Christian community. For the non-Christian community will point, that man is a hypocrite, that man is a liar, that man is... And so verse 8 takes us to the deacon whose characteristics are similar. Dignified as the household of verse 4 is to be dignified, their wives are to be dignified. But this dignified is explicated for us in three words. Not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Not double-tongued, insincere, lying, flattering, double-talk. Under the pressure of church ministry, The pressure to double-talk, the pressure to say one thing to one party and another thing to another party, to play political games with your words, is very great, my friends. Not addicted to wine, here we go again. Uh, It may be too technical term, but not occupied, not devoted, not given to, not the pursuit of alcohol. Not greedy for dishonest gain, here we go again on that. Alcohol, money keeps coming up. But Proven blamelessness is what is required of him, which is a synonym for being above reproach, back in verse 3. So there's the private characteristic of the person you're selecting in ministry. Then there's a public life as well. For verse 2, above reproach is a public thing. It's a noble task, a good work, and therefore must, day un, must not be open to any attack of criticism specifically in the areas listed below, though I wouldn't limit it to them. And then verse 7, must be well thought of by outsiders. Otherwise you'll fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. That's why a recent convert is in danger, danger of pride and conceit and fall into the devil's condemnation, and the outsiders can bring charge and accusation against them. Now, Thank you for bearing with me as I've tried again to go through this little passage. One that I hope and trust that you are well acquainted with and have just been reminded by me. Now let's think about it in terms of temptation. Let's kind of put our heads back back to front on reading this passage. 
And we turn these into the temptations of ministry because they're about ministry. So what's it saying? Well, there's three elements. One, your public office increases pressure upon you. You see, those who would stand in ministry in the church of God actually have the public testimony and accusations and attacks levelled against them. It depends on the level at which you're doing the public ministry as to where that kind of attack is. It can be in the local school, in the PNC, where you are known, or it can be you are known in the local newspaper, or it can be you are known on the national newspapers, or in the... But whatever level of public stand you have, the public watch and rejoice and enjoy seeing our downfall. And therefore, it's very dangerous pride and conceit in the position that you find yourself in. And you need to have that kind of sufficient Christian maturity to cope with what is taking place by the pedestal that people will put yourself put you on. You need to be able to avoid the pedestal. I think this is especially true in Australia. I cannot understand how my American brethren survive. Because the Australian culture of cutting down the tall poppy, the Australian commitment to egalitarianism at a perverse level of commitment, means that it's relatively easy for us as a culture to understand ourselves as not putting ourselves above anybody else. Because rest assured, if you do, you will be cut down. Our American brethren love the big man. And I cannot understand how they can do it and remain Christian. But that's their problem, not ours. Our problem is don't put your head above the parapet because you'll get shot from here. That is the character of our very culture. Aim at mediocrity. You have some chance of getting there. <laughs> Never do anything that might actually be any good. Join the ALP. Adopt a low posture. <laughs> but you do need the balance not to have pride, conceit in the position because you'll be under public scrutiny not just private scrutiny and so the level of temptation is incrementally lifted by undertaking public ministry secondly there are areas of weakness that are particular problems for people in ministry the love of money we live on the cross of Christ. We live on him who had nowhere to lay his head. We live on his blood. This is not the way to get rich. This must not be done for money. We do need to be content with our possessions. We need to teach our congregations generosity, but we ourselves need to be generous. Covetous people are not generous people. Money 
It's one of the big reasons people get out of ministry. It's still a big temptation. Second, love of alcohol. It has come into our church culture in my generation. In my youth, no evangelical minister would contemplate drinking alcohol. It just was not part of our culture. Now, I've been, cons I've been involved in the very sad events of counselling men who have given up the ministry because of their addiction to alcohol and the growing acceptance of the world. We can't be different from the world. We must be like the world, especially in their addiction to alcohol. All things to all men does not mean that, my friends. And then there's the tongue. That's a particular problem for us because we use it all the time. It's our tool of trade. And the tongue is an uncontrollable thing, James tells us, and the teacher is to be judged with greater strictness, remember, my friends. And so the control of tongue and the temptations of tongue are really tricky and difficult in church ministry because we speak so much. And then there's this flippancy. We are to be serious men and women, respectable and faithful. And that doesn't sit with our Australian culture much, which is a very flippant, very superficial, very jocular kind of culture. And then there is violence. We mustn't be aggressive. We mustn't be quarrelsome, disputatious, argumentative people. So they seem to me, given what he does in saying these are the people to select, that these must be the problems in ministry and therefore these must be the temptations that we face. But the outworking of all those temptations is in relationship. Because ministry is all about relationships with people. And so a quarrelsome person, a bully, lacking gentleness, is no minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is humble and gentle. And our relationships must be demonstrated in our family life. Because... We are ministering in the family of, of God. And if we can't minister in our own family life properly, then how can we minister in the family of God properly? There are some of us who live in denominations and churches who perceive church as a governmental structure. And there are others of us who perceive church as a business structure. And you can get books that will tell you how to minister in both those frames. But it seems to be the New Testament sees church as a family structure. And our relationships in family life are the demonstration of our godliness. And that's particularly demonstrated in the godliness of our wife. Well, let me then return to dealing with temptations. Uh, Friends, in this lifetime, we're going to deal with trials, temptations of many kinds. And we must rejoice at the opportunity for growth under the kindness of God. We need them and meet them in God's wisdom. To understand the world and the way to live, 
And so what we need to do is ask God to give us wisdom generously, which he will do. But we mustn't ask as double-minded. Doubt is not a good translation here. Double-mindedness is what it's about. The double-minded wants God's wisdom, but also wants the world's wisdom. You can't have both. It's one or the other. If you're going to face temptation, you've got to face it with God's wisdom, who will give it to you generously, and not the world's wisdom. But when we have these temptations, these internal seductions to sin, we need to know our desires come not from God, but from our own sinful hearts. They show us our weaknesses and provide for us the opportunity to battle, and in the battle they provide the opportunity for spiritual growth. But if we don't battle, then they will grow into sin, and sin grows into death. But don't be alarmed at your temptations. Remember, God is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We should never, therefore, be overwhelmed, but have confidence that God is faithful to guard us and to provide for us alternatives. But we must seek his wisdom to know the alternatives, to find the way through it. But we should rejoice in the battle. We should rejoice in the battle seeking his wisdom to grow through the process. So in ministry, we have heightened temptations because of public life. And these particular ones we've mentioned that are the temptations that seem to lie behind those who are going to be in ministry. And ministry wives are caught up in the same battle, but have great contribution to their husbands. And so the study of Proverbs, as Helen has indicated, is a terrific place to go, my sisters, to be able to work through how you can be the contributor to godliness rather than the undermining of your husband. But when we do face the temptations, which we will because we're still sinful, then rejoice and be glad. The Spirit of God is with us to wage battle against the flesh. Keep in step with him and have that victory and grow step by step. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. Here is my opportunity to go ahead. It's a glass half full view of temptations, isn't it? But it's the James view of temptations. Let's pray. And I think dessert's coming, sweets are coming. And then somewhere along the line, you're going to get me back here to answer questions. Is that what I'm saying? But I'm going to pray now. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'd help us to rejoice in the privilege we have of battling for the truth, even inside our own lives, as well as in the lives of our society and within the congregations that we minister to. We thank you for the privilege of entrusting us with this work. And pray, Heavenly Father, that you may give to us such confidence in your faithfulness that we will not be overwhelmed by temptation, sorrowed, saddened by seeing the sinfulness of our own hearts again, but rejoicing in the opportunity to change things, to improve things, to alter things, to be different, to grow in holiness and righteousness of life. So, Heavenly Father, 
Give to us that wisdom from above, pure and peaceable and open to reason and gentle and kind, that we may seek your kingdom and your righteousness and put into application the faith so that the works may demonstrate the faith that we have in your Son that you have given to us through your Spirit. So enable us, Father, to deal with the temptations that come our way with joy at being able to again grow more and more like your Son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.